Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. My recommendation this week is a book called In God's Path, The Arab Conquests and the Creation of an Islamic Empire by Robert Hoyland. One of my frustrations in putting together a narrative of the Arab invasions was knowing which stories were unreliable and which could be fairly included. As soon as I finish, boom, this comes out. I have a copy and I used it in the writing of this episode. It's easy to read and brings together all the sources into a nice narrative of the birth and growth of the caliphate, where... In the Shadow of the Sword explored the swirling mysteries of the invasions. This details their solid path through the Middle East. If you'd like a free audiobook, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 65, 7 emperors. Previously on the history of Byzantium, the emergence of a new Arab state in the Middle East saw the Eastern Roman Empire lose control of Egypt, Palestine and Syria. For 60 years the descendants of Heraclius weathered relentless attacks from the caliphate, broken only by two civil wars. Meanwhile, in the Balkans, a tribe of Bulgars migrated across the Danube and set up a new state on the empire's doorstep. In 695 AD, Justinian II, the great-great-grandson of Heraclius, was dragged into the Hippodrome by an angry mob and had his nose and tongue mutilated, signalling the end of his fitness to rule. He was exiled to the city of Cherson in the Crimea, as the new emperor Leontius was crowned. During the end-of-the-century episodes, I made several comparisons between the fate of Byzantium and that of the Sassanids in the face of the Arab attacks. The sudden loss of Iraq totally undermined the rule of Yazdegerd III, and as the military defeats piled up, his provincial aristocracy abandoned him, leaving the Persian Empire to be swallowed whole, by the caliphate. Despite suffering a similar series of military defeats, the Romans did not turn on one another for any significant length of time during the second half of the 7th century. There were a number of usurpation attempts, 
But the sons and grandsons of Heraclius hung on, and the legitimacy of their succession was doubtless one of the keys to their longevity. But Justinian II's high-handed treatment of his army commanders finally broke the spell which Heraclius had worked so hard to conjure, and his exile saw the Romans fall into twenty years of internal strife, just as the caliphate was united and on the warpath. Long-time listeners will know this story all too well. As with the crisis of the 3rd century, military disaster always encourages men to try and grab the job of emperor for themselves. It always seems a bitter irony for the people of the empire, because the last thing they need in the face of foreign invasion is to be told to pick a side in a civil war. But such are the realities of life, and for the Byzantines, the theme armies that had kept them safe were now poised to be rival centres of power for the men who would try to seize the throne. I've created a new map to help us through the next century or so. I say I've created it. I've taken one of C. Placidus's brilliant base maps and added in all the significant locations that I think our narrative will cover. I've posted it on today's episode on the website, at Facebook, and on Twitter. But there's also a new map page at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. You can find the link in the top right corner. It has all the maps from our various episodes on it, but at the very top is our current map of Anatolia and the surrounding areas. I've even made it the new blog header so that you can jump there quickly just to check out a location. So from now on, if I mention a location, I won't need to tell you where it is because you can find it on the map and uh, be confident it will be there. Cool? Cool. The first of our seven emperors is, of course, Leontius, the general who Justinian had imprisoned after leading the army to defeat at the Battle of Sebastopolis. Leontius took the imperial name of Leo, however, I'm going to refer to him as Leontius the General. With seven emperors appearing over the next 20 years, five of whom changed their names upon entering office, I think it will be easier on everyone if I refer to them by some sort of nickname or job description instead of their imperial title. Leontius, the general, was a middle-aged man when he became emperor. We don't know his date of birth, but he was from Isauria and was determined to contrast his rule with that of his high-handed predecessor. The crowd in the Hippodrome might have cheered if Justinian's head had been chopped off, but Leontius insisted on the lesser sentence of mutilation. The new emperor wanted to make it clear that he was a reasonable, God-fearing man, no revenge-minded tyrant. As the former Stratigos of the Anatolicon, he was an experienced and well-respected man, but he had no legitimacy to speak of. He spent his first year in office peacefully catching up on imperial administration, but that was to be the high point of his reign. The following year, the caliph, Abd al-Malik, ordered an army to march on Roman Africa. Operations at the Arabs' African base, Karawan, had been on hold for the past few years because of trouble with the local Moorish tribes. But the arrival of a new army put an end to that rebellion, and prepared for a fresh assault to the west. 
This large force was led by Hassan, a Ghassanid tribesman, who crossed into the Exarchate in early 697. His force was strong enough that it drove through the small garrison standing in its way and made straight for Carthage. Despite the city's large walls, the inhabitants knew their days were numbered. The huge besieging force was here to stay. The city's wealthier residents took this opportunity to flee, many heading for Spain or Italy. After a short resistance, the Arabs broke in and then captured the other major towns of the province with ease. Back in Constantinople, Leontius, the general, ordered the Caravisiani fleet prepared for a counterattack. Soldiers and sailors gathered under the command of John the Patrician and set off that autumn to catch the Arabs by surprise. That part of the mission was a complete success. The Arabs had pulled a chain across the harbour of Carthage, but the Roman fleet burst through it and stormed ashore to the shock of Hassan's garrison. Hassan himself was off trying to subdue the Moors again when news reached him that the Romans had not only driven his men out of the capital, but had now liberated several neighbouring towns as well. Both commanders sent word immediately to their superiors asking for reinforcements. But it was Abd al-Malik who responded quickest. Determined to cut the Byzantines off from Africa, he ordered a portion of the Egyptian fleet to sail west with reinforcements. They arrived outside Carthage in spring 698, and John quickly realised how outnumbered he was. Ordering his men back onto their ships, the Romans sailed away, leaving Hassan to reoccupy the province. It was a replay of Constance II's attempt to retake Alexandria in 645. John took the fleet north and put in on the island of Crete. While his men rested, he prepared to head back to Constantinople to discuss the situation with the emperor. His men, though, were not so sure. Some worried that they would be held responsible for the failure of the mission. Others grumbled that the expedition had failed because it was ordered by a filthy usurper. Others simply noticed that there was nothing standing between them and the capital, and that the emperor's opinion of their efforts would be far more favourable if one of them was the emperor. John's officers pushed him aside and hailed one of the vice-admirals of the fleet as their new ruler. This position was the Thrugarios, anglicised as Drungarios. The Thrugarios was a man named Absimar, so he probably had German ancestors, but must have been thoroughly Roman, to be put forward as emperor. It's an irony of the Byzantine imperial system that the failure of the expedition could be blamed on the emperor, who wasn't there, for losing the favour of God, while the vice-admiral on site got rewarded by his men. But there was no time to chuckle at this turn of events. Absimar the admiral gave the order, and the fleet kicked the Cretan sands off their feet and set sail for Constantinople. The fleet met little resistance as it entered the capital's waters and harboured at Sikai, just across the Golden Horn from the city. This would prevent any reinforcements from crossing the Bosphorus. 
inside the capital, our old friend Yersinia Pestis had returned and was making life grim for the inhabitants. Despite this, though, the populace stood by their usurper rather than support the new one. There was little chance that Apsimar's men could scale the walls, and so they began to negotiate with the soldiers guarding the gates of the land walls. It was a nervy summer as each side waited the other out. The easiest guards to reach were those in the northeast corner of the city, next to the palace of Vlacherne. Again, you'll read this anglicised as Blacarnae. Eventually, the guards at this part of the wall accepted a bribe to open the doors, and Apsimar's marines burst in. Doing their commander's reputation no favours, they looted as they went, carrying off the property of the city's residents as payment for their long wait outside. Leontius was seized in the palace and suffered the same fate as his predecessor. His nose was slit and he was sent into exile. However, his was to be a short journey. He was tonsured and forced into the monastery of Dalmatis, which was in the capital. The new emperor would be able to keep an eye on him. Leontius was still middle-aged and had been emperor for three years. His friends and loyal officials were banished from the capital and their possessions confiscated. The population seems to have accepted the regime change pretty quickly. What choice did they have? But everyone could see that the new emperor had no more right to rule than the old one. As he was crowned emperor, Absimar took the imperial name of Tiberius becoming Tiberius III to history. On this podcast, of course, he will be known as Apsimar the Admiral. We don't know how old Apsimar was, but again it's fair to assume he was middle-aged and was an experienced officer. We know he'd won some victories over the Slavs during Justinian's reign, so he did have military credentials to call on. His first decision, though, was to abandon the fight for Carthage, He could hardly risk sending another expedition, lest they return to overthrow him. Roman rule in Africa, then, was finally over, 900 years after Hannibal left their shores. Instead, the new emperor ordered the theme armies to make an attack on Syria. Abd al-Malik was distracted by a revolt in the Iraqi army, which gave Absamar the chance to grab some legitimacy. The emperor turned to one of the few men he could definitely trust, his brother, who was named Heraclius. I know, why always the same names? Heraclius was a good general and was given the unprecedented command of all the theme cavalry units. This decision went against the grain of Byzantine policy, which, as you know, was to split their armies up to avoid the potential for one defeat to lead to a complete collapse. But by grouping some of the army's best men together, the Romans fielded quite the fearsome raiding party. Heraclius waited until autumn, then crossed the Taurus Mountains just before winter set in, and descended into Syria. The surprised Arabs sent out an army from Antioch, but they were beaten back with heavy losses. Heraclius's victorious army then raided as far as Samosata, 
and when spring came they crossed back to Anatolia, dragging much loot and many prisoners with them. This insubstantial victory, though, did little but remind Abdel Malik to tighten his grip on the borderlands. As we'll discuss in a moment, the Caliph wanted to capture Constantinople, and that meant flattening all the obstacles on the route to the capital. Once the Iraqi rebellion was put down, the Syrian army returned to raiding. But instead of seeking out the theme armies, the Arabs headed for Armenia. In 700, they captured Theodosiopolis and drove out any Byzantine attempts to maintain a presence there. In 701, they raided in such force that the Armenian chiefs surrendered and accepted an Arab governor on their soil. The caliph knew that the Christian Armenians could be a real danger behind his lines if his men advanced into Anatolia, and he was determined to bring them to heel. However, the Armenians were notoriously independent and disliked this new situation so much that it was only a year later that a rebellion swept the country. The main Arab garrison was surprised in the early hours of the morning and either slaughtered in their beds or driven into the Araxes River, while a smaller force to the east were wiped out to a man. The Armenian leader, Sambat Bagratuni, sent some booty and a request for help to Absimar. Abd al-Malik viewed this episode dimly and ordered a more methodical approach be taken in neutralizing the Armenians. The first step saw his son Abdullah march into Cilicia and begin to fortify the city of Mopsuestia. Cilicia, as you know, is just on the Arab side of the Taurus Mountains. By building a military base there, the caliph was signalling that he planned on launching many an invasion across the mountains, either north into Armenia or west into Anatolia. A raiding party were sent to keep Heraclius busy, but the combined thematic cavalry were victorious and drove the Arabs back to their base. In 704, Abdullah led a large army into Armenia, while a smaller force continued to subjugate the towns of Cilicia. Heraclius led the theme cavalry across the mountains and once again inflicted a defeat on the smaller Arab force. But in the north, the Armenians and the small Byzantine garrison were swept aside with ease. The following year, with Arab control reasserted over Armenia, the nobles of the region were invited to meet their new provincial governor. The Arabs announced that they would simply resume the previous system of governance, and therefore the chiefs and princes should come to be given orders and subsidies. However, once they arrived, the Arab troops locked the men inside a church and burnt it to the ground. Soon after, the Arabs began to refortify the city of Devin, the old capital of Persian Armenia. From there, they would keep an eye on this rugged and vital borderland. The Armenians, it seems, were not going to be in any position to aid the Romans. And where were the Romans while that was going on? Well, Heraclius had been recalled in 705 to fight the third of our seven emperors. Because in the summer of that year, Justinian II appeared at the gates of Constantinople, backed by an army.
We're actually going to leave the Byzantines there for this week. To close the episode, I wanted to talk just a little more about Abdel Malik. As you may remember, the death of Muawiyah and his descendants had led to a serious civil war that rocked the caliphate for a decade. Emerging successfully from it was Abdel Malik, still at the head of the Syrian army and still maintaining Umayyad rule. You can actually get a glimpse of the man on this episode's post on one of his coins. It may not be a very clear portrait, but it's a valuable one, because the caliph himself would soon remove all pictorial representations from his coins, and eventually from the rest of Muslim life. The image we get here is of a man standing with one hand on his sword, and his eyes staring grimly forward. Abdel Malik was determined to return the empire to a war footing. He knew that external military success would legitimize his victory in the civil war. It would distract from the memories of infighting and harness the energy of his people for the glory of his regime. Conquest was to be achieved on every front. It was a policy which would drive the caliphate for the next 30 years at least, in part because the caliph had many children who inherited their father's dreams. Uh, later historians would make much of Abdel Malik's lustful side. He was certainly fruitful and allegedly fathered 18 children by six different wives, along with a host of other children by unofficial partners. Four of his sons would become caliphs and two others would be important army commanders. So no wonder then this period became the second great expansion of the Arab Empire. As we've seen in this episode, the preparations were being made for an attack on Constantinople. The first step was to cut the empire off from its African supply lines, the second was to neutralise the Armenians, and the third was to establish a new base in Cilicia to give the invading armies the shortest possible supply lines. But New Rome was not the only target of the caliphate's second wind, and I just want to give you the highlights so that the wider story doesn't get lost amongst the Byzantine civil wars. After taking Carthage again, Hassan set about the administration of the province. He appointed an energetic general named Musa, who took on and defeated the nearby Moorish tribes. In order to bring them to submission, he sold many captives into slavery and forced others into the service of the army. The Moors had far more in common with the Bedouin Arabs than they'd had with the settled Romans, and would eventually take to Islam. For now, though, Musa drove westward with his enlarged army and took control of the future Algeria and Morocco, capturing Tangiers in 708. He installed an Arab garrison to begin to bring the area under their control. However, things didn't stop there. In 710, the Gothic king Witiza died, and a civil war broke out between his son and a nobleman named Roderick. The new commander at Tangiers, Tariq ibn Ziyad, decided to take advantage of the situation and crossed the straits into Spain in 711. He brought with him a large force of Arabs and Moors who easily defeated the divided Visigoths in a series of battles. As had happened in Iran, the local nobles began to make private deals with the conquerors to keep hold of some of their wealth. 
Within a few years, the Arabs had taken control of the Gothic holdings in southern Gaul, bringing them into direct contact with the realm of the Franks. The Gothic Spanish were able to survive the transition somewhat intact, and in the very north, a couple of independent kingdoms survived the conquests, uh, including the ever-independent Basques. Meanwhile, at the other end of the caliphate, an energetic emir conquered Transoxiana and Sogdia by 715, corresponding to modern Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and parts of Kazakhstan. Giant conquests which brought Islam directly to the Silk Road. The going was tougher in mountainous Afghanistan, as it always is, but another successful general was able to conquer the Indus River Valley, or Sindh, in modern Pakistan by 713. The momentum of the conquerors surely would carry them to victory over Byzantium as well. Abd al-Malik would not be alive to see it, though. The great caliph, who played such a crucial role in creating the Muslim world, died in Damascus in October 705 at the age of 60. He had made his empire more centralized and better organized, but he'd achieved most of this by investing in the Syrian army. Resentment of this would come back to face his successors down the road. For now, though, his many sons would take over the caliphate. They obeyed his wishes and didn't try to pass the role of caliph onto their own progeny, instead passing it on to the next brother. Considering how men with absolute power normally behave, this is a remarkable testimony to the respect they had for their father. Next week, then, a new emperor and a new caliph will take the stage. It only remains for me to once again thank MusicAlley.com for the music which plays us in and out. This piece is by Rob Vandenberg, and you can get great royalty-free music when you visit MusicAlley.com. And if you live in the US or Canada and would like to try Audible.com's service for a month and get a free book, then visit AudibleTrial.com forward slash TV Critic. And while you're there, check out In God's Path by Robert Hoyland. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.